Welcome to Masters of Fail. I'm your host, Jose Malabo, and this is the only podcast dedicated to telling the stories of real entrepreneurs who live to talk about it. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Advanced Technology Development Center of the Georgia Institute of Technology. This is Jose Malaba with, with one of my favorite uh, designers and colleagues, perhaps ever, uh, Justin Max. He's founder of Spark DSG, which I must tell you, to Justin, I didn't quite get it right away. And then I was like, hit me like a ton of bricks that was short for design. Uh, yeah. So thanks for coming on the show, uh, Justin. It's good to talk to you. Yeah, good to see, good to see, talk to you too, Jose. No problem. Yeah. So um, for those that don't uh, haven't looked at our LinkedIn profiles, uh, I think we met back in 2010 at a company, a lot an e-commerce company, not a lot of people remember, called GSI Commerce, um, which got bought by my former company eBay, which really did, uh, I guess, forecast my early exit from that job. Uh, but I met Justin there, and I think you were running what Creative for True. True Action was the company. True Action, yeah, many names at that company. GSI, True Action, eBay went through a couple of different iterations there. Yeah, I was a uh, uh, art director, associate creative, creative director there, um, working on um, kind of IR one hundred e commerce websites, doing the design work for that. Yep, yeah, it was a good run. And so I was there doing corporate marketing for the the mothership, I guess, and. We, you and I interacted occasionally, and my lens on you was is, is you know, was from that corporate experience. I didn't really start to work with you until you started Spark DSG. Uh, so, to kind of take me back, because I know why I left Spark uh, D, uh, GSI Commerce. It was I was yeah. it wasn't my choice, right? They laid us all off. Like, what was that decision like? Because I think a lot of people that want to start their own companies, you go back and you go, what was that junk? What was that going through your head that was like, I'm going to leave this corporate gig to go cut my own path. Yeah. Well, I actually, Spark was my second attempt at starting uh, a design agency. So I tried in my early, early twenties, I had my first stab at it was called open door design group and it never really launched. It really was like myself and maybe two to three freelancers. Um, I really wasn't, I didn't really have the background of the network to be successful at that point in time. And I didn't really know how to market myself either. So, um, so the GSI commerce gig was like really kind of an essential bridge, um, to spark because I got to work with a lot of great brands, meet a lot of great people, create a much fuller network. So in some ways it was such a blessing actually that. It was a six year stint for me. Um, but I had always had it in my head that, you know, I wanted to create something for myself. Like life is a little bit too short and I have my own thoughts about how design work should get done. And honestly, um, when I joined GSI, the early days were kind of wild west. Like that I actually, it quite appealed to me because it was, Hey, here's your project. Here's your team that you're going to work with and just go run the thing. And it felt almost entrepreneurial because there were, there just weren't a lot of, there weren't, a, wasn't a lot of structure at that time. And then as the, the agency side of that company got bigger, um, the company grew, there was just kind of more tiers put over top of the 
creative team, um, more, more account management, more project management, um, more rigor. Uh-huh. And I just had like, uh, it just didn't feel the same to me anymore. It didn't feel as, as like, uh, I didn't feel like I had the ownership that I did initially. And, um, yeah. And, and I just realized, you know what, I kind of have been here longer than I wanted to be. And it was time to like, start trying to branch out and, and go for it again. Um, so yeah, I just, I just kind of went for it. I started to work my network. Uh, you know, I think most entrepreneurs, if you are just bootstrapping things, it's just, it's just hustle. So it was like working late every single night after work, putting in a full day at the agency and just trying to build something and get to like that, that threshold where you can break away and just, you know, have the confidence to go do it. So I had always kind of had it in me to, it was always a goal to try and create something. So, yeah. So I've been open about, you know, my failures as an entrepreneur and what inspired me. I just kind of grew up around it. I think you have a more interesting story than that in terms of how (laughs) you kind of where your entrepreneurship uh, gene spawns from. I never would have guessed this at all, but I I would love for you to kind of dip into that because I never really was into the, the, the punk music scene, but I know what it means culturally. Um, yeah. Back in our day, right in, in the eighties. Yeah. So, so, talk us through how you kind of, I guess, sparked your entrepreneurship from from your music background. Yeah, well, I mean, um, now and I think earlier when I first started Spark, people were like, "Oh, wow, you're you're kind of crazy to go do this. You're brave to go do this." I've never really felt that way, and um, I've actually reflected on this a bunch. And I think it really does go back to like my teenage years, my early twenties. So like as any teenager, you're like trying to find yourself, you're like trying to figure out who you are in the world. And, uh, there's a local record store and I found in the record store, just thumbing through the CDs at the time to date myself, but, uh, found a Pugazi (laughs) album, 13 songs. And this is a red cover on that album. And I was just looking through it and on the inside, there's a photo of the lead singer and one of the guitarists. And they're just like, it's like a black and white fanzine image. Uh, I think the guitarist is actually the head is like upside down in the photo, or maybe it was Ian McKay, the singer. But at any rate, I was like, what, what is this? Like, what is this image that I'm looking at? What is this scene? So I bought the album uh, to this date. It's one of my favorite albums of all time. The opening baseline uh, waiting room. It's phenomenal. But I got myself um, curious about like, well, what is this scene? Is it around me as a teenager? And yeah, there were like kids doing punk rock shows, hardcore shows locally. And um, so I found myself getting involved in that. And, you know, that led to me like using my early, early design talent to like help create fanzines, uh, help bands with like, you know, their seven inch album art. And um, the scene itself is extremely do it yourself like you want to put out a magazine yeah you're making a fanzine you're you're doing layouts with cut paper you're going to kinkos and doing photocopies um you know if you want to put on a show you're like contacting the local vfw hall and renting out a space and then marketing that show and you know getting your money back you're just trying to break even and have some bands play and have some fun um and then later on like uh, in college, I was in a band and we would tour. We drove around the country three or four times in a beat up old van. 
and all of that was like, we just scheduled the shows, just like contact the venues, contact like whoever's put, doing the show in that city, you figure out your tour and you just go do it. So I think in like those formative years where you're, you're, you know, you're figuring out who you are and what you like in life, all of that was, you know, shaping me to like be comfortable with just trying stuff, yeah. like just go try it. And also like when you tour, you're, you know, you don't have money to be at a hotel every night. You're like meeting someone at the show who will let you stay at their house. So there's just all this risk in all of that, that you, I think, get a little bit comfortable with. So for me, like, I really do think in having fun with that, like having some moderate level of success with that, um, it just encourages you to not be afraid of risk in life. So starting an agency was, you know, I had the calculus of like, could I pay the bills for my family? But in my head, that was the only risk I was really weighing. The rest yeah. of it just felt comfortable. Yeah, no, that's that's a that's a great story. And and I got to tell you, as you were talking about some terms, and I'm old enough to to know what a fanzine is. Um, yeah, I feel like, dude, I feel like we're gonna have to publish like a like lexicon of what you just said for those that don't like um, album cover. Right? When's the yeah. last time most people touched an album cover? Um, but I just had this picture in my head of you coming home from a gig, and your parents are like, Justin, what are you gonna do with that? a drum kit. How are you going to make a living? And you're like, Oh, uh, I'm going to become the head of a design shop someday. Well, well, that's another crazy thing. Maybe, I mean, maybe it's just was like this perfect Venn diagram of stuff in my life. But my dad, uh, was a sales executive, um, for like industrial equipment. And my mom is an illustrator. So in my house, like I was around, commercial art um and my mom's incredibly talented and my dad is my dad's a very good salesman so like um they didn't you know when it was time to figure out college and i was like well i want to go to design school there wasn't really like this stereotypical conversation of like you know well, you should be a doctor you should be a lawyer or any of that it was just oh, okay that's we understand that's cool so they didn't and, and also my parents, um, you know, when I was in college or even younger, they kind of let me have that freedom to like, oh, you're going to go on tour. Okay. Be safe. <laughs> but, you know, come back, but, you know, go, go do. So they gave me that space and I got to, I got to credit them for that because uh, as a parent now, you know, that takes like uh restraint and love and all those things you know yeah so. yeah and I, i'd assume your parents didn't have a cell phone or beeper to hook to ping you in the middle of the day like no before. man self uh, not even cell phones like later later i think the last time i might have had a burner phone but it was all pay phones and you know quarters and stuff that you can't even find out in the wild anymore yeah yeah it's, it's true you see a pay phone today and you're like oh is this real or is this just art yeah. Um, so having you're at like 15 people full time now, I know you have some outside devs as well, because I've worked with mm -hmm. you since then on a couple of projects. Take me back to when you realize there's something here and I got to hire folks like that, I think, mm -hmm. is a scary moment for a lot of people, because I know I've gone through it and you're like, how do I? Wow, I have a customer. Now, what do I do? Yeah. 
Um, well, yeah, like I said earlier, it's, it was all, it's all been bootstrapped from day one. So it's all organic growth. So for me, it was like, um, you know, I did need help pretty early on. Um, I think success in business, right. It's, it's hard work. It's like finding an opportunity that you think you can capitalize on. And then there is a, like, there's an element of luck too. Um, so I was fortunate enough to have some projects that I needed freelance help on pretty early. Um, sorry about that. My bad. Um, so, you know, so I was working with people like pretty early on and one person consistently. And, um, so I started to do this math of like, well, you know, if I'm, if I'm paying the, the, these freelancers for this amount of money per month over a couple of months, it starts to make sense where it's like, well, this is equivalent to a full-timer. And my goal is to have an agency with full-time employees. So let's take on this additional little bit of risk. And honestly, I feel like that's been the model, like all, mm. all the way through up until today, which is like uh, comfort at a level and then it plateaus. And then you you have the next bit of growth and the next kind of discomfort. And then you reach that next little level of comfort and you keep growing in that way, at least when it's organic. I've never, um, the thing that scares me the most is outside investment, honestly. And that some right. entrepreneurs might, you know, they, they have probably have very counter ways of thinking about how to fund and grow a business and scale it. And there's probably some truth into approaches where you scale much more quickly. But for me, from that first hire to now, it's like, well, what is a reasonable amount of risk that I'm willing to put on my shoulders? And if I'm okay with that risk and that stress, I'll keep moving forward. And uh, so first, the hire, hire number one was, wasn't really... Uh, I had to work and, um, I had a really good person, um, who's not with spark anymore, but I'm in, still in contact with this person. Uh, they're doing great in their career and, um, you know, it was a great first hire and, you know, I had, a I had a bunch of lucky, really solid early hires that helped me grow the company in the early days and, and create a good culture. So, well, I think you touched on something earlier and in this. I mean, no one really factors in good fortune or luck, but serendipity yeah. as is, is as much, um, I think, a contributor to success as a good business plan and a strong leader. You know, there are some things I've seen in my career, not necessarily because I was in them, but as an observer, you're like, well, if that company goes out five you know, months later or five months earlier, it's not where it is today. It, mm -hmm. so, so, you know, like when you started um, in 2000 and is it 11 you started the company, Spark? Yeah, 2011, yep. Like, where do you think, because I know my view professionally and personally on design has changed. Um, I don't think mm -hmm. it was as prevalent in business parlance. I, mean, I don't remember sitting in rooms with CEOs going, hey, we have to hire more designers. I feel mm -hmm. like it's changed a lot and for the better, but I'd be curious what you think, because I think that word means so many things to so many people. Mm-hmm. Well, if, if you're talking about the, uh, the maturation of design as a contributor to 
a business's success that's definitely happened in my career for sure right like um when i first left school i came out dot com boom era and it was all like novelty wait it i'm was, older than you am i older than you i'm i'm sad I, I, I I mean, I, let's see, I graduated college, uh, in 99. Oh, all right. I, yeah. I have to go lie down now, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like dot-com boom. And I was, I went straight to New York. And so those, those early years, it was like, just kind of play, like this is a new medium and it was play. And it was like, everyone was figuring things out. You had all different, there was no like established UI patterns for things like navigation that we all take for granted today and, and, um, and design as a discipline was still more on the graphic design side. Yeah, it really wasn't the concept of like, UX UI interaction, there wasn't a specialization that was like, how do you take traditional graphic design and translate it to this new medium. So naturally, kind of it just didn't have the maturity. And it didn't have a seat at the table, really. Um, and that's changed, like that's flipped, uh, you know, 180 degrees um, in, in my career. And now it's, you know, experience can be the differentiator between one product and another, you know, like um, we're doing some work in uh, uh, sort of a, a wellness health space with an app. And I think it was in 2020 or something like 9,000 um, apps in that category that were launched. Wow. So there's definitely crossover and features functionality, you know, uh, business goals. So like, what's the differentiator? It's experience, it's design. And that's recognized now at the corporate level. And, you know, the, the smart organizations place design in the same conversation with the tech team, with the marketing team. You know, um, the fact that most organizations now have product owners and product teams, you know, it's really come a long way. So, which is a welcome change because you can have more serious conversations about the impact of design and, and, um, and your strategic value. But there's also, because there's more focus, there's a lot more saturation in terms of the market, the number of agencies, the number of people in the space. So that's, that's a challenge of it. Do you, do you also find, and I want to get back to sub a little bit on a project you and I worked on together years ago. Um, mm -hmm. Do you find all this sort of self, uh, sort of the design SaaS platforms like Canva and a bunch of hacks like me jumping in there trying to put stuff together? Is that is that good or bad for for the industry? For the for the design the the design technology industry at large. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't think it hurts us so much because Spark, we've always tried to do work that is custom, that um, has some niche requirements um, that can't easily be pulled into a packaged product. But I think it it's challenging for the local um, designer who's maybe a one or two person shop whose audience is small businesses and even some medium sized businesses, you know, it, it, um, uh, it, it empowers the small business owner to do more on their own, which 
I guess if you're looking at it just at large, is probably a positive for the small business owner. But for the for the design professional, you know, it, it does probably remove a portion of the work. Um, and uh, you know, I I think um, I think those products too. It's like you can create something pretty professional looking because of the nature of the product. Um, as someone who's like not a design professional, there's still obviously things that go into all that, right? Like just having an understanding of typography and um, color and spacing, proportion, all the sort of fundamental aspects of visual design. But um, but you know the templates that are in those products are pretty pretty solid for a lot of needs. So I, again, it doesn't hurt agencies that are doing more custom work, but I think it does hurt. Maybe it makes it diff more difficult to break in as uh, a solopreneur, yeah, um, and and you know be able to pay the bills. Yeah, so. yeah. It's and I won't even get into Chat AI because um, or GPT because mm. I know there's some products out there that still can't draw a human thumb properly, and I think that's going to take a minute. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I honestly, I don't. I was curious if our conversation would go here. I. I haven't settled on a position on how I feel about it yet. Um, I wasn't. I, any... I wasn't planning on going there, but I, I I'm Ugh. looking at my other screen and I have it open. I'll, yeah, and I'll give you mine, and then maybe you can tell me I'm full of it. Um, Go for it. I think for the work I do, and it's probably predominantly written um, strategic planning design from a perspective of driving direction of design for campaigns, right? GPT has some great starter uh, value for me, right? Hey, turn this thing into a blog post and, you know, I recommend it. It's got a good starter piece, but it does eliminate sort of that ramp time. Cause I think human beings have this, like, I got to get started on something sort of procrastination in them. Like if I can yeah. just throw in a good couple of prompts, it'll get me going. But I think the gap between where I really want a finished thing to be is, is much wider than people that are big proponents of it will lend you to believe, right? I wouldn't take the stuff I've curated out of GPT, even though my prompts may not be great, without some human logic and take it to the CEO without feeling some risk, right? I wouldn't take it for being, I don't think anyone, I just don't think it's there yet. And it took me a while to really embrace it. So I guess I'm hugging it, but I, I haven't seen it replace, you know, somebody with good design aesthetics and creative chops to kind of make this fit in an ongoing company's narrative. It, there's no way AI can know where my company is in the life cycle of its, you know, um, journey based on what it was trained on. And so I, I, I don't know. I, so I, I'm, I'm probably further along in embracing it than I thought I would be. Mm. I mean, we're using it currently, but it's mostly, it's mostly for our content um uh as you mentioned like content starts um there are tools obviously that are out there that, that already exist that will do some level of like image generation for marketing support um you know it's when you actually look at what's output it's like not great you know the creative's not fantastic um but um but I, but it's one of those things where you know where it is today is the is the worst version that it will be, 
it's the least effective version that it will be. So, you know, I think it's one of those things where if you think about other applications or software that you've used and, uh, you know, I think about Photoshop when I first started using that, it was like, well, you know, undos, no layers. Um, and we used that tool back then, but now you think about the Adobe suite and what's available in that suite today. And it's, it's pretty incredible. So, um, yeah, I do, I do, I do. I think it, we're kind of at a pivot point. It's maybe a little bit like when I started my career where, you know, the designers that went into print, uh, versus the designers that went into digital, it was, you know, predominantly print, but this new tech, this new medium. Now it's like, if you're a designer coming out of school, you're almost digital. Everyone's digital first. So I think maybe we're at that sort of inflection point where it's like, well, does AI just change the nature of the career in a way that's, uh, substantial? Um, I think probably, um, and I, I think the thing I wrestle with is like, does it remove the magic of the creative process? Because that's the bit I fell in love with. It's like the, being in a flow state, solving a design problem, uh, and emotionally feeling like really satisfied by that process. I, I worry that maybe the tech removes some of that. And what does that do uh, to the career? You know, if yeah. I'm a designer coming out, I don't know that I, I don't know that I'm in love with being a prompt jockey. <laughs> like that's not, that's not what I want for myself. So I'm, that's why I haven't landed on a POV yet because I have seen efficiencies in certain things where we are using yeah. it. But at the same time, like I fell in love with a um, discipline and I, I guess I worry that AI maybe fundamentally changes what I fell in love with. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. I, I, my first few jobs um, were in an advertising PR firm uh, agency, right? And so I always sat next to, you know, someone like you was in the next office. And I remember one of my first, you know, in, in tech in particular, we were working with this broadcast company. I saw his name is Larry, like staring into a screen. He was stuck on what the advertisement creatives tagline was. And I was on the same account on the PR side. And he, um, <laughs> he asked me a question. I did a drive-by, right? I just, I was just like, uh, say this. And it became an amazing ad because I knew the business side. I know how broadcast works and it became this huge spread that was very successful. I don't know how non-humans mm -hmm. do that, right? Like, I think the tagline was, uh, you know, I don't know if people know this broadcast, live broadcast has a seven second delay. So they have so someone can kill yeah. the F word or one of the many other George Carlin words that aren't allowed on the FCC airwaves. And it was really like that human interaction, that creative sort of aha moment. He's like, oh, that's it. I don't know how you do that in a product. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, um, the other thing, and this is, this, this is where like, I think you have to be careful. I see so many opinions like on LinkedIn about this and it's like well how many of you are experts in these in in these large language models and how this all actually works but in my novice brain on this subject i'm like well if it's training on the same data set and it starts to produce creative eventually won't it also be training on its 
AI creative that it's already produced, like, doesn't it get recursive? And is is there room for the AI to 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 continue to push culture forward? Because I think that is one thing that's interesting about creative work is like whether it's uh, a musician, an artist, a graphic designer, a fashion designer. Creatives do push culture forward. It we we are challenged to create something new that is different and can be differentiated and marketed. We have to like innovate. And um, I'm right. just curious about like the language models and the AI and how it operates. Does it does it get recursive and just start to regurgitate more than it tries to push culture in new and interesting directions? We'll see. I don't know. Yeah, that's it. I don't know if my brain is big enough to to answer or even prognosticate what yeah. that is, but I agree with you in terms of you know artists and, and entrepreneurs sort of driving culture because you just take a look at history. At least the time I've been on this earth, so much of it is driven by those folks, like I mean, seventies um, and eighties sort of musicians and and uh, you know icons drove so much of what became popular in America, um, arguably narrower media back then we had three mm -hmm. channels uh, short of uhf but uh you know it, it's amazing we talked about culture relative to corporate culture i, I want to get into this before we sure. have to go um you took spark fully virtual yes. right yes um mm -hmm. i'm working largely virtually i find it at times challenging uh i do as much as i love being home you heard my dogs bark you hear the traffic outside my my house and I don't have to commute. I work more longer hours, uh, but I when I'm done, I close my laptop and I go mm -hmm. have a cocktail, right? Um, but I'm curious what you think of that. Do you struggle with that decision? Because I always thought of creatives as a bunch of people in a room knocking ideas mm -hmm. out, and, and maybe I'm wrong. Well, so yeah, so first of all, so Spark, we had, for the better part of the agency's history, we had an office. Um, we actually went hybrid prior to the pandemic. So we were three days in the office, two from home. So culturally we had started to like nudge in that direction. Um, I will tell you though, for me, it's been a blessing because um, I never wanted to compromise on like, I created a business for myself to run things the way I wanted to. So my office is, was near from my home. I'd never had a commute under an hour before starting Spark. So I was like, screw that. I'm, I'm not doing that anymore. Yeah. So it was always hard to like recruit people to come out because I'm not, I don't live in a city, I live in the, in the burbs outside of Philly. So recruiting young talent to come from the city out was difficult to begin with. Um, so I've been able to connect with folks, you know, all over the States and we have some of our team is offshore as well. And I'm just be able, been able to find better talent. Um, so that's been fantastic for us, but yeah, it's difficult. Like, Spark has always had a strong culture. I think it's one of the things that is different about Spark is just, um, uh, I think we're very authentic. I think we are hardworking and I think we have each other's backs in a, in a very real way at Spark. Um, and I'm very proud of that. But the challenge is, yeah, if you're a young creative, you do, you do get something by osmosis being with other creatives. Um, so we have to work really hard at trying to replicate that. And we have a bunch of things that we do to try and create those connections virtually. Um, 
it's not as natural as being in an office together, but I think we're able to do it. Um, and so what we do is we really focus on um, some collaborative tools. Like we use Miro. Uh, we're using Slack a lot, obviously, but these are kind of boilerplate now. Like everyone's kind of using those tools. Yeah. What's been really important is we do a spark summit um, once a year. I'd love to do it twice a year, but we get together in person for a week and make sure that we create like lots of opportunities for collisions and connection and, um, and not in, not in like a trust fall kind of way, but like a real sort of kind of way. And, yeah. I mean, like you're not running the office. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Right. And basically what I've done is I take all the dollars that we put towards lease and I put it back into like the, these moments to try and build, build culture. And then, um, um, regular communication so we do like uh we use a tool called 15.5 but we're doing one-on-ones all the time and uh, i still meet with everyone in the company um every other week at least every other week and we just ha you have to put in these checkpoints and be really super diligent not just about like hey there's this project and let's brainstorm but like how do you replace the like coffee machine talk like how do you stay on top of what's happening in people's lives so that they, you all feel connected. Um, and honestly, that just takes like work. And I also think hiring is, it's really important to kind of understand the personalities of the people that you're hiring and how they might fit and play in a remote environment because it requires people to proactively care about one another for, for you to build a culture. And, um, it's challenging when you have folks who are in a remote context don't offer of themselves because you won't learn anything about them um, and you won't learn about their opinions. You know, when you're in an office space, sometimes you can read someone a bit better and be like, oh, I can tell they're upset or annoyed or I can tell they have something to say, but they're not saying it, just body language. And in a remote context, you don't have that. You have, you need the person to be willing to like, put a little bit of that out there so you can pick up on it. So like if you hire folks who are very, very quiet or reluctant to share, um, it, you, you really have to like work very hard to make sure that they're heard and seen and you know, that you're accounting for them professionally and as people. So it's, um, it's been a blessing for us, but it does come with a lot of hard work to make it work. Well, having worked with you guys very recently on the Morehouse work and then going way back to our days, Tweedalicious yeah. and Vireo Labs, I've always felt it was pretty seamless. I couldn't tell who's virtual and who mm -hmm. wasn't. Like you guys do have a strong culture. Um, I know I personally struggle with this, this remote environment because I'm sort of, um, I guess if it was a comedian, I'd be a physical <laughs> comic. And I can't translate that into this box. Like, I think I'd be like, you know, Harvey Corman and, and Carol Burnett in one and a little bit of Joe Coy, right? It's hard to do that in two dimensions, yeah. man. Cause no one can see my, no one can see my yeah, legs. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's hilarious too. Like I had, um, we just did spark summit and, um, uh, I had an employee who hadn't met, actually hadn't met me in person yet. And they're always like, oh my God, you're really tall. <laughs> you just, you they don't, um, you know, you don't have any of that physical connection, right? And they're like, oh, wow, that's not, you, you know, I 
I didn't quite imagine you. And it's not like I'm seven foot tall, but I'm a pretty tall guy. But yeah, it's funny that you, you don't. Tall. There's things you just miss, right? From yeah, yeah. There's there's stuff like this. I think, but you're, you're from what I've seen. I mean, in our recent work together, your team seems pretty cohesive. And I will say this, and this is not to be a plug. I don't know if I ever told you this um, before. I let you go. Back in the day when you guys built Mosaic, mm-hmm. right? Remember mm-hmm. that product? I pitched it to a VC. Did I tell you what he said? Um, I I think you might have told me, but it's been a minute. He leaned back, so I'm in this coffee shop, this bougie coffee shop in Menlo Park, which I'm like, all oh, these all these Silicon Valley startup guys pitching. Literally, there's 20 guys pitching pitching VCs in the room. This this guy, this probably a mid sized venture firm, leans back. He goes, "Did you guys really design this?" And I was like. Yeah. I was like, well, my design team did. He goes, this, this alone is worth $100 million. And I was like, well, all right. I own 50% of the company. I'll take that check now, bro. <laughs> yeah. well, that's, I'm, just, I'm just sorry I never got to launch it, man. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's a nice compliment. Um, you know, I'm sure when people throw around dollar amounts like that and you're, you're, you know, we're all scrapping to keep our businesses running and be profitable and all that, it's like, Okay, well, how can I access that capital? <laughs> That'd be awesome. Yeah, no. yeah, man. Like twelve years later, that conversation rings through my bones like it was yesterday. Yeah. And I was like, "Because you're right. At that moment in time, I'm running on vapor. Mm-hmm. The company's running on vapor. I don't know how I'm paying the mortgage this month, and this guy's throwing out a big old number. And we end up shutting the company down. But I was like, "But the design alone was worth that much." Write me a damn check, man. Yeah, I don't think people, I mean, I guess that's one thing. If you're an entrepreneur, um, you know, you know, like it's it's real work. But on top of the real work, it's the mental load that doesn't leave you, even if you shut your laptop at five o'clock. So it's like a 24-7 kind of thing that you have to learn how to dance with, like. So yeah, I, I, I remember those days, Jose, and that was a, that was a cool idea, cool product. The design was fun to work on. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was interesting too. Like, that's one thing. We have so many accepted UI patterns now. It almost feels like we're selecting from a box of Legos. And um, the opportunities to innovate and create kind of net new experience, um, they're, they're a little farther apart now. And uh, the Mosaic product was, a, was one where it, it felt novel and unique. And that was cool. Yeah, and it sucks everybody else sort of started using that UI and I never got to launch and yeah. monetize the damn thing. But uh, who knows, maybe maybe we'll crank something back up again yeah. together. Cause, uh, Always down for that. You know, yep. I'm on a three or four year cycle where I'm just like itching to build something. Yeah. So, But anyway, man, it was always good to catch up with you, Justin Max with, uh, with Spark BSG. Um, we'll catch up. Yeah, great soon. to talk to you, Jose. Thanks, man. Okay. Take care.